Did you always know that your father had been killed in Crow Park on Bloody Sunday? I went off me. I didn't think much about him because I didn't see him, Sarah. I wasn't there. And other people admired me, you know. I was there to be all together. It's only when I become a woman that I realised my father was shot on the back. He flew off the wall all, all the time. Now we come out. On a sunny afternoon in July 2016, Nancy Dillon was at the home of her daughter, Kathleen Bogle, in Blanchestown, County Dublin, telling stories and singing old songs, surrounded by family of all ages. Nancy was 95 years old, born in February 1921, three months after her father James Matthews had been shot and killed in Croke Park. In 2016, she was the last surviving child of the Bloody Sunday Dead. But it was more than that that made her story special. Nancy was among the last survivors of a generation reared in the old tenement buildings of Dublin. At 95, she was older than the Irish state itself. Her memories were at once bright and fading. She remembered her mother, Kate, working as a fish seller. She recalled getting a mug of tea and a piece of bread before school at the Penny Dinner House near home on North Cumberland Street. She remembered the drinking and the fighting in the tenements and her young adult life in the kitchens of some of Dublin's finest hotels. She saw the Beatles once. Another time she saw Roy Rogers, the famous old cowboy. Jackie Onassis was there another time. But her father's story when she was very young, she sometimes didn't know if her mammy was ever married. Then, as she got older, she began to learn more about James. On the afternoon of Bloody Sunday, he had left home for a walk with a friend who lived nearby and called into his mother on the way to say hello. It was James's day off from work as a labourer and the sun was shining. And my father was going for a walk with his friend. And I don't know which of them said, come on, we go up and have a look at the match. You know, that all through till I was 10, I heard all that. When the shooting started, James tried to climb over the wall at the present-day Cusack stand side of the ground. His friend made it. But James was shot in the leg, slid back down the wall and died. The following week, Kate sat at his funeral with their two daughters and pregnant with Nancy. Did Nancy miss him? No, she said. She never knew him. She was told he was kind and soft-hearted and he doted over his girls. He worked for a bakery on Parnell Street in the city who looked after James's mother when he died. As the girls grew up, their father's loss impacted their lives in different ways. Nancy's mother struggled terribly with her grief. There was talk of taking the children away from her once, but she never let them. 
But after the death, I think she wouldn't stay in the house or not. I mean, I don't know. I hadn't a sense what she was crying about. I didn't know what tragedy it was. It was a terrible time for her. But some people, some people were good, you know. I don't think she ever got over it. And when she'd cry, I'd cry. That's all I know about her. Kate drank a lot sometimes, then got sober, then drank again. She died a young woman, falling from a balcony in the tenements. No one knew for sure how she died, but the same unspoken sadness lived on through the next generation. The grief of the Bloody Sunday families was often that kind of silent grief that no one spoke or asked about. Sometimes down the years, some of the families tried to bring their story to the GAA. But those phone calls and those letters got lost between the cracks. That left the families alienated, alone, sometimes frustrated. As the years went on, the victims were eventually forgotten by the public. Eight graves out of the 14 were left unmarked for various reasons. As the story of Bloody Sunday was framed in various ways to suit different political requirements, the story of the victims was condensed down to Michael Hogan as the martyr hero. The names of the rest were largely forgotten. Their stories were lost. That eroding of the Bloody Sunday story began in the immediate aftermath of the killing with two inquiries that recycled the testimonies of 35 people into a version of events that suited exactly what the British authorities needed. The victims, once again, were the Bloody Sunday dead and their families. So join us as we return to Croke Park for the final time to look at how the reality of what happened there on Bloody Sunday was mangled and distorted to fit a more convenient truth and how that failure to provide closure for the Bloody Sunday families left scars that are still healing. In this, the eighth and final episode of The Bloodied Field. The gradual disappearance of the Bloody Sunday story began almost immediately after the firing stopped. Two military inquiries into the shootings were held in camera, away from the public eye, and the reports then sealed for nearly 80 years. When families sought answers about the death of their loved ones, even the simplest detail was withheld or reluctantly shared by the authorities. 
when the Boyle family asked about the circumstances of Jane's death, for example. The girl buried in her wedding dress on the week she was meant to be married. The family were simply told she had died in the crush. When they received her body, they removed her clothes and held her coat up to the light of a window, revealing a bullet hole through the back. On March 5th, 1921, a letter from the St Vincent de Paul charity landed on the desk of the Deputy Adjutant General at the Irish Command Headquarters at the Phoenix Park in Dublin. It was about a boy living among the poor in Lower Mount Street in the city. His name was Michael Feary. He had been living with his aunt since his father had been killed on Bloody Sunday the previous year. As a former soldier, Michael Feary had always hoped the service would provide opportunities as an apprentice for his son. Now, in their hour of direst need, the Fearys turned to them, seeking help. But the army response was cold and gathered up what would soon become the future for the stories of all these people. The Fearys were told they weren't the British Army's responsibility. Any application for compensation, read the reply, should be made through the civil court. But the Fearies weren't looking for money. They simply wanted a chance at a better life for Michael's son. No one anywhere took responsibility for Bloody Sunday or for the care of its victims. All that was left to the families was their own stories to keep for themselves. Barely two days after the shootings at Croke Park, those courts of military inquiry were convened at the Jervis and Matter hospitals where most of the dead and wounded had been taken. Both inquiries sat for 18 days, listening to evidence and eyewitness accounts from 35 witnesses, 28 of whom testified before both inquiries. The inquiries themselves were engulfed in controversy before a witness was even sworn in. Under the Restoration of Order Act imposed on Ireland in August 1920 as a method of quelling unrest, military inquiries had replaced coroner's inquiries, allowing the military commander in the area to decide whether inquiries could be held in open court or behind closed doors. Major General Gerald Boyd, the commanding officer of the military in Dublin, decided the inquiries would be held in private with no public gallery. That decision provoked an angry reaction on the first morning of the Matter Hospital inquiry, representatives of the Lord Mayor and Dublin Corporation were refused entry. Christopher Friary, the solicitor representing the family of James Tehan, requested the immediate release of James's body for burial in Tipperary. Now that request was granted, but everything else was stopped in its tracks. Later on, in the first week of the inquiry, a letter was received from the Boyle family. The following Monday, Michael Common read a statement on behalf of the Boyles and Daniel Byron, Jane's fiancé, declining to produce witnesses on the grounds that this is not a public inquisition. And I have expressed instructions, he said, not to produce witnesses except in an open court. 
Political pressure was exerted by Irish MPs at Westminster to open the inquiries. The Court of Inquiry will be opened or closed according to the judgment of the Court itself, replied Hamar Greenwood, the Chief Secretary for Ireland. But that pressure went nowhere. The issue was never raised again and the inquiries proceeded behind closed doors. So for 18 days, witnesses trooped in and out of both hospitals answering questions. Sifting through the detail now, it all goes a long way towards answering some big questions like who shot first, the police or the IRA. But the most striking details at first glance, they don't concern the big questions. They bring us back to the victims. The statements from their relatives identifying the bodies tell us things like the time they left home for the game. Tom Ryan at two o'clock, Joseph Trainer at five past 12. They tell us of Michael Feary, the ex-soldier, unemployed, the pouch of tobacco in his pocket, his dark blue trousers and army overcoat, his boots worn down at the heel, his body badly nourished. The evidence from those who were at Croke Park itself make real the horror of those people's death. Captain Bartlett, the officer in charge of the soldiers at Croke Park, recalled collecting 14-year-old John William Scott's body from the street. An ambulance driver recalled turning over the body of Patrick O'Dowd, the man killed helping people over the high wall, separating Croke Park from the Belvedere sports ground. His face was covered with blood, he said. A spectator remembered how he lifted 10-year-old Jerome O'Leary onto the wall at the back of the canal goal so he could get a better view. Then he remembered the first shots from the canal bridge and Jerome being hit. And there was poignancy too in the evidence of Lieutenant Colonel Robert Bray recalling those first shots, knowing that two of those bullets killed William Robinson and Jerome O'Leary. I heard three shots fired inside the enclosure, he said. One was fired, then a pause. Immediately after, two more. A fusillade began immediately. The first three shots were fired at nearly 1,525 hours. When it comes to painting a picture of what happened, the evidence is both vivid but vague, damning but uncertain. Major Edward Mills, the man who saved the lives of the Tipperary team as head of the mixed RIC and auxiliary force, was called to testify. His evidence stayed largely faithful to the angry report he wrote on the night of Bloody Sunday that effectively threw the blame on the indiscipline of the police. He recalled shouting at his men not to fire and searching the ground for arms but finding nothing. A statement in direct contradiction of the government's insistence that 30 guns had been recovered from the field. Major George Dudley, head of the Black and Tans that day, supported Mills's insistence that no guns were found, but also said shots had been fired at the police from the ground before his men fired from the canal bridge. Luke O'Toole, the GAA's General Secretary, testified at the Jervis Street inquiry. His evidence was simple and typically meticulous. He had been on the stand side of the pitch when the game began and saw an aeroplane passing overhead. 
when he went to investigate the presence of an armoured car at another entrance on Jones's Road, he saw firing beginning from the canal side of the ground. I took cover under the wall by the entrance gate, he said. I saw police come into the ground through the main gate. They were not firing. People were collected together and police fired some shots up in the air. It seemed to me the police fired to prevent a rush at the gate. One RIC constable who was in the second police truck recalled ticket sellers running away when the trucks arrived. As they ran, they turned and fired at the first car, he said. They were the first shots I heard. The same constable also told the story of finding a bullet in his left breast pocket when he got back to his barracks. It had passed through his cigarette case and his pocketbook and dented his whistle. He even showed the items to the court. Two more RIC constables insisted shots came from inside the ground. One said he saw 15 to 20 men firing at the convoy. A picture was beginning to form. Police firing from the bridge, more police coming through the main gate, firing into the air. And this suggestion that the first firing came from inside the ground. But contrast that picture with the evidence from two Dublin Metropolitan Police Constables patrolling the canal bridge before the trucks arrived. As the men got out of the car, there was no shooting, said one, until after the men had time to run down to the turnstiles. The final and potentially most damning witness to claim the first shots came from inside the ground was a spectator. Someone said the military are coming, he recalled. I saw three men in civilian clothes standing in the grandstand near the front. They fired several shots in the air. Now, that seemed conclusive. But no one in the same area of the ground testified or told the newspapers of the gunmen in the crowd. The press table itself was at the grandstand, but no reports ever mentioned shots fired from there. Most of the auxiliaries and black and tans who testified largely avoided any detail as the shooting unfolded, but not all. One auxiliary recalled a bullet hitting a wall and sending splinters into his face as he climbed into the ground. Please, for the court, in your own words. I landed on my hands and feet. A group of men between 20 and 25 were stooping along the crowd away from me between the fence and the wall. I pursued and discharged my revolver in their direction. I chased them across the field nearly to the wall on the east side. I then saw a number of people going towards the main gate by which I came in. I rushed to the gate to try and carry out the duties of formal identification. Another auxiliary cadet in the fourth truck outside Croke Park, recalled climbing through the turnstiles and returning fire, insisting again that the police had been fired upon. But not all the evidence was that uniform. Statements from individual policemen claiming the firing was started by IRA gunmen in the ground also contained a number of contradictions that made them difficult to corroborate. One RIC constable who insisted the firing came from inside the ground also said he brought his men into Croke Park through the main gate. 
That was contested by one of the DMP constables who said they saw the same RIC constable calling his men together at the canal bridge, but before he could order them into line, some were already running down towards the ground. Then add in the eyewitness accounts from journalists and spectators that flooded the newspapers in the week after Bloody Sunday, all of them pointing towards the police on the canal bridge as the only source for the firing. And this official version becomes even harder to believe. The autopsy reports also push back against the argument of shots coming first from inside the ground. The bullet that killed William Robinson, the boy in the tree behind the canal goal, entered his chest in the front and exited his right shoulder. The shape of a child turning to look behind him towards the trucks gathering on the bridge. It's the same with Jerome O'Leary, sitting on the wall just down from Robinson. He was shot in the face, also turning to look to his left. If shots had come from inside the ground, the crowd would already have been upset and running. The children would have dropped from their perches and the entire direction of the stampede to escape could have been different. Police also testified to firing on knots of people trying to escape. Five of the victims were shot with their backs turned running to the north and the east, away from the firing emanating from the southwest corner where police lined the bridge and poured through the entrance gate. Contrary to the official reports released on the night of Bloody Sunday, it was clear that no guns were found in Croke Park either. Just one gun was found even in the vicinity of the ground that day. No incriminating documents were found either. Orders for the police to form ranks had been ignored and the firing that followed was random and uncontrolled. The evidence was nowhere near strong enough to lay the blame on gunmen in the crowd firing on the police. If anything, the majority evidence, combined with some plain common sense, pointed to a sudden, unexpected breakdown in discipline among a small group of policemen that escalated sharply into a full-blown shooting spree. But the instinct of both inquiries to protect the RIC and the army was overwhelming. The Matter Hospital report found that, quote, the firing was started by civilians unknown, either as a warning of the raid or with the intention of creating a panic, and that the firing by the RIC was carried out without orders and was in excess of what was necessitated by the situation. The auxiliaries and the army were absolved of any blame when it came to firing on the crowd. That fell on the RIC and the Black and Tans. The Jervis Street report echoed the Matter report, but also added that, quote, in order to prevent certain civilians escaping from the football ground, without orders, an indiscriminate and excessive fire was opened by the RIC from the Canal Bridge. In April 2003, David Leeson, now an associate professor at the Laurentian University in Ontario, released a paper called Death in the Afternoon, having been among the first academics to access the inquiry reports on Bloody Sunday when they were released in 1999. The paper is brilliant, deconstructing with extraordinary detail and clarity 
what likely happened at Croke Park and giving us the best distillation of how the massacre unfolded. From the tangle of claim and counterclaim and distorted truths, his conclusions are simple but not straightforward. Well, at Croke Park on Bloody Sunday, as I argue in my paper, it was not a battle. It was represented as a battle in the public statements of the British government. But I concluded, based on my own research, that that's not what it was. It also was not a deliberate reprisal. That's how it was represented uh, in the public statements of the Irish Bulletin, for example. The uh, Irish revolutionaries represented Croke Park as a deliberate reprisal, as a deliberate attack on the spectators. But based on my own research, I concluded that what happened at Croke Park was neither of those things. That it was something in between. That it was a raid that went wrong. A raid that turned into a massacre rather than the working out of a carefully laid plan or a battle between two forces. After the reports were concluded, there was no call for further clarifications around the actions of the police and certainly no suggestion of criminal wrongdoing on their part. Around the same time as the inquiries were in session, a delegation of Labour Party politicians from Britain were touring Ireland, visiting various parts of the country to investigate the question of reprisals and violence in Ireland. They visited Croke Park to reconstruct the events of the day, drawing more detail from many of the witnesses who had testified to the inquiries and some who hadn't. A ticket seller recalled taking tickets at the turnstile entrance when he saw William Robinson fall from the tree. One black and tan threatened to shoot him if he didn't open the gate and let them in. Daniel Byron returned to Croke Park a few days after Jane Boyle had been buried to speak to the politicians. We were standing near the centre line of the ground, opposite the grandstand. The match had been in progress about a quarter of an hour when I saw an aeroplane approach, hover over the ground and then go away. Almost immediately afterwards, I heard the sound of shots coming from the direction of the bridge outside the ground, and my fiancé, who had hold of my arm, was shot dead. A few seconds after this, black and tans rushed into the field through the gate near the bridge, and people became panic-stricken. I saw the black and tans ordering people to put up their hands. I saw no shots fired from the crowd. That was the tone of the evidence the politicians heard from 11 witnesses at Croke Park. No shots from inside the ground, shooting that began from the police at the canal bridge and continued as they entered the field. Their findings stood in stark contrast to the official reports, beginning with where the first shots came from. Their report read, In light of the massive evidence available this charge of shots from Croke Park 
would appear to be quite untrue. Not one of the many witnesses examined corroborated it. On the contrary, evidence was submitted to the effect that the police commenced to fire almost immediately the lorries came to a halt. Rifle fire was also directed down Russell Street whence the lorries came and also over the turnstile entrance to the football field at the spectators inside. The consequence of this was that a man was mortally wounded about halfway down Russell Street, a young woman was shot dead at her fiancé's side and a small boy perched in a tree inside the turnstile entrance was brought down wounded. While the possibility remained that a warning shot came from inside the ground, it made no sense to the delegation that anyone would fire to draw that kind of attention to themselves. It also made no sense to them that if the police were fired on, how they hadn't incurred any casualties or that more arms hadn't been found discarded in Croke Park. Above all else, the plan to visit Croke Park, in their view, was flawed and fraught with potential danger from its conception. The scheme itself was dangerous, read their report. Its execution was a lamentable failure and there was no justification for what occurred. Croke Park was a ghastly tragedy, resulting from official errors of judgment and incompetence. In London, the report was seen as a piece of political theatre. Neville McCready, head of the British forces in Ireland, wrote to Hamar Greenwood, rejecting allegations of indiscipline, reprisals and poor training. He said the delegation had been manipulated by Sinn Féin. In his memoir, he wrote the delegation had been taken in by, quote, the natural genius of the Irish for the invention of fables which they think may please their audience, more especially if the relation should be to their own advantage. The official reports from the matter and Juris inquiries were circulated, but then blacked out and removed from the public for almost 80 years. In March 1921, Greenwood was asked about the reports in Parliament and restated for the final time the government's boilerplate explanation for the killings at Croke Park. The court, after an exhaustive inquiry, formed the conclusion that the firing was started by certain civilians in the enclosure and that fire was opened by other civilians upon a detachment of Royal Irish Constabulary who were approaching one of the entrance gates. This image of a straight shootout bore no resemblance to the accumulated evidence. It bore no resemblance to Edward Mills's report rattled out just hours after the shooting. It looked nothing like the many eyewitness reports from families, spectators and police. It left huge gaps and serious questions that would never be answered. Once the Labour Party politicians went back to England and the reports were sealed away, the families and the perpetrators of an appalling massacre were never heard from again. On August 12th, 2016, Nancy Dillon and her family visited Glasnevin Cemetery in Dublin and made their way to a remote part of the huge graveyard. They watched as a black sheet was pulled from a gravestone, revealing a picture of her father, his name, 
his age, his address, and that he was in Crook Park on Bloody Sunday, 1920. The president of the GAA was there. Radio and television people recorded and filmed the event and asked her questions. The story was broadcast on television news that day and it appeared in the newspapers. Since November 2015, when the Boyle family had raised a gravestone on Jane's resting place, families of the Bloody Sunday victims in unmarked graves, with the assistance of the GAA, have erected headstones to remember their people. Eight of them had lain in unmarked graves for lots of different reasons. Some families in 1920 couldn't afford a headstone. Some were afraid of reprisals if they erected a gravestone. Others just didn't want to be associated with the killings at Croke Park for the same reason. And there were some families who wished to wait till the unrest in the country had subsided before erecting a gravestone on their terms. But as civil war began almost immediately after Irish independence was achieved, that intention was delayed and pushed out. But looking around Glasnevin Cemetery at James Matthews' relatives that day, something about the day was sending a tremor of emotions through them all. They never knew James, but they knew Nancy. They knew her cousins, they knew her sisters. Some of them even knew her mother. But the unveiling of this gravestone brought peace to all of those people who died without seeing this day too. At every grave unveiling over the last five years, the same emotion has been there. It has brought people together and reconnected all parts of families. Relatives of the victims felt their connection with another family member who knew the victim, who spoke of them. Some of them had died without seeing the gravestone erected, wishing their relative's story would be told and their memory honoured. Being able to do that for them meant the world to so many people. The same emotion could be felt at grave unveilings for those like Jerome O'Leary and John William Scott who had no family left. They are now part of a bigger story, being cherished and curated and remembered. No longer cast out and forgotten. For the GAA itself, the Graves Project has allowed them a chance to fully face and address the legacy of Bloody Sunday as it applied to them. In the immediate aftermath of Bloody Sunday, the GAA opted to avoid any official mention of the Croke Park killings. If it was mentioned in the following decades, it was usually to somehow elevate the GAA to a higher sense of Irishness or link them to some notion of sacrifice for independence. But the reality of Bloody Sunday and how it applied to the GAA was far more complex than that. Behind all that rhetoric, the GAA had lost contact with the families. That left some families feeling isolated down the years, often angry. On November 21st, 1920, 14 people went to a Gaelic football game and never came home. Somehow the shock of that event was almost too much for the GA to manage. They needed to move forward to survive in 1920. But they left people behind. The GA's role now 
as a broad, community-based organisation is to look after the memory of those who died. Connecting with those stories has offered different insights into what Bloody Sunday means to the GAA and how it really affected and shaped the organisation. Reaching out to the families has brought solace to so many people, but it's brought healing to the GAA too. For the wider world, the massacre at Croke Park amplified the feeling of Ireland out of control, of the British government unable to govern in Ireland. Fundamentally, their failure was based in the fact that Britain could not conceive fully the idea of Ireland wishing to be independent. For centuries, Ireland had been seen by Britain as an inextricable part of itself. Ireland wasn't even an empire colony in their eyes. This was part of their homeland. That feeling is visible in their refusal to impose martial law or treat the IRA as a genuine military foe and wage a war on those terms. Instead, they allowed the country to drift. In the 48 hours after Bloody Sunday, over 500 IRA suspects were arrested. In the following six months, over 4,000 were interned in camps around Ireland. After the IRA wiped out a convoy of auxiliaries at Kilmichael in West Cork, the Sunday after Croke Park, full martial law was finally imposed on parts of Munster and later South Leinster. A month after Bloody Sunday, the Government of Ireland Act was passed into law, keeping the six counties of Antrim, Armagh, Down, Derry, Fermanagh and Tyrone within the United Kingdom with a parliament and establishing a southern parliament for the 26 counties south. While the politicians dotted I's and crossed T's, the war still continued. Between January and July 1921, a thousand people on both sides of the conflict, plus civilians, were killed. A truce was finally called on July 11, 1921. On that morning alone, 12 people died in combat. A bank and a post office was raided, an RIC station in Meath a Coast Guard station in Donegal were both attacked and a magistrate was kidnapped. This war was relentless and uncontrollable to the very end. Six months after the treaty establishing the Irish Free State was ratified in January 1922, Dublin finally met their opponents in the 1920 All-Ireland Football Final, delayed since the autumn of that year. It was Tipperary. Instead of being shattered by the death of their friend on Bloody Sunday, the team held together and moved on. And Tip finally won their All-Ireland. One goal and five points to one goal and two points. Some of the men of Bloody Sunday didn't play much football after that, some of them got embroiled in flying columns and the Civil War. Some drank too hard and suffered with the memory of what they had witnessed in Croke Park. But winning that All-Ireland was their small reward for surviving and persevering. It remains Tipperary's last All-Ireland football title to date.
Dublin also moved on to eventually fulfil all their promise, winning the next three All-Irelands between 1921 and 1923. In the end, history left neither Tipperary or Dublin behind. What it all means to us now, why we should care, that comes back always to the dead of Bloody Sunday, but also their living descendants. Through terrible grief and the tragedy that seeped out in many different ways through the decades, the families found ways to move forward and build lives for the generations that followed. Bloody Sunday hurt them all, often in invisible ways, but it never held them down. The gift of the Bloody Sunday victims to us now is truth. Knowing their stories frees us from the myths that defined Bloody Sunday for a century. Knowing their stories invites us to explore the shades of grey between what we always knew about Bloody Sunday and what we know now. Some of what we find is challenging. Some parts go against everything we thought was true. But this new truth, it also releases us. It provides space for understanding and for healing. The death of 14 people at Croke Park will always be a senseless tragedy. But knowing their stories help us understand the world they lived in and how that world brought every single person to Croke Park that day. But in the end, we return always to the people, to those lost. After Nancy Dillon died on July 22nd, 2018, she was buried in a plot near her father, the man she loved but never knew. Seeing her father's grave had brought peace to her and to her family. May the telling of the stories of the Bloody Sunday dead bring peace to them all. Thanks for listening. The Bloodied Field podcast is written and produced by me, Michael Foley, and edited by Andrew Foley. We had four special guests on the show, an interview with the late and wonderful Nancy Dillon, recorded in July 2016, and another with Professor David Leeson, recorded in September 2020. And thanks to Keith Walsh and Jill Beersworth at Two Pair Films for facilitating and sharing those interviews. Alan O'Mahony also played the Auxiliary Cadet who testified at the Military Court of Inquiry. And Jim Crowley voiced Daniel Byron, Jane Boyle's fiancé. And as we conclude this podcast series, we also want to thank the GAA for their support. To Noel Quinn and to Lisa Hayden and to Kean Murphy in particular for his unstinting support, passion and endless conviction that the stories of the Bloody Sunday dead would be heard. Thanks also to Gavin O'Connor and to Moss Rockets for his genius production skills that gave these shows one last necessary polish. And from me, a very special thanks to my brother Andrew for his skills, his patience and his intuition for what this podcast needed to sound like and for making that happen. 
Finally, thanks again to all of you for listening, for your kind comments, for your feedback and for your support. You can find us and follow this full series of podcasts at gaa.ie forward slash bloody Sunday or on Spotify. You can contact us on Twitter at bloodiedfieldp1 or email us at bloodiedfieldpodcast at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode or the entire series, please do spread the word. This is a story we feel everyone needs to hear.